0: Time's already. I can take it. Don't worry about me. I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about the refrigerator. I can give you stuff. Look. Look. Look.
1: Please, Raoul. I just do what I swear. Just
2: give me another t- <sighs> But come on, Raoul. Tunes. Hello, and welcome to 80s Movie Montage. This is Derek.
3: And this is Anna.
2: And, uh... Tunes, man. Right? Right.
3: So that is a clip from Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Mm -hmm. Uh, No no question mark. Just Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Statement. Apparently, it's bad luck to have a question mark in film titles. I've never heard that before. I read that somewhere. And the thing is, is that we've gone through so many movies now. Not necessarily movies we've covered with question marks, but in talking about... The people involved i've seen so many movies with question marks in the title maybe they didn't do very well so maybe there's some truth to that um
2: i think it would improve many titles star wars
3: (laughs) exactly yeah so okay who framed roger rabbit um you know we've been on a real 1988 kick uh, Day of the Dead, the last one we did was 85, but the three previous were all 88 as well. So are we back? St- strong year. Strong year for film. Um, and just a strong film in general. We have also returned to a film that got critical acclaim. Yeah. Uh, as in Oscar nominations. So before we dive into all the people involved, and some of them are actually people who got those nominations. Are you
2: telling me that... The character Miguel was not nominated for (laughs) Best Supporting Actor in Day of the Dead?
3: Uh, Surprisingly, no. We just got to move on, then. We just got to move on. All right. It's done. Yeah. It's over and done. Okay. So, of the nominations, uh, they got Best Sound, Best Art Direction, Set Direction, or Decoration, my apologies, Best Cinematography, and then... So those are the three that they were nominated for. The other three that they were nominated for, they actually won. Not surprisingly at all. So they won for Best Effects Visual Effects. Yeah. That's the title of that category. They also won for Best Effects Sound Effects Editing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then lastly, they won for Best Film Editing.
2: I mean, that's a huge part of, when, like, when you're watching the movie and you're wondering, like, how did they even do this? Oh, for sure. Like, that that was it. It wasn't just all, it was the effects, the editing, it was yeah. all that.
3: Not at all the takeaway from acting performances or any of no. that other stuff. No, but... because
2: they were doing green screen before yeah. green screen was cool.
3: Yeah. And then, in addition to those, like, competitive Oscars that they were up for, they got a special achievement award oh. uh, for animation, direction, and creation of the cartoon characters. So, again, all right. well-deserved, I would say. Okay, now let's jump in to the people behind this movie. First of all, writers, we got a couple of them. First of all,
1: mm-hmm.
3: we have Gary K. Wolfe. He wrote the novel not... Who framed Roger Rabbit, but who censored Roger Rabbit? And it does have a question mark. Granted, it's not a film. It's a novel. So maybe that hmm. uh, suspicion
2: or... um. I mean, have they really changed the the story? Was it...
3: I don't know to what degree. Actually, you know what? He did two follow-up novels to that one, also including the character of Roger Rabbit. And from what <laughs> really? I read... There was a
2: Roger Rabbit trilogy of novels? Yeah,
3: yeah. Wow. Um, And from what I read, I want to say he maybe took to the movie because the two following novels are canon to the movie and not to the original novel. Does that make sense? Like they follow the story that was created for the film, not the story that was created for the first book. It makes sense. Okay. I don't know if I said that correctly, but um, as far as like his film credits... He was a novelist and did stories, and so not a ton, but um, he did some shorts and then a TV series called Toontown Hard Boiled, which falls (laughs) right in line with the world of this film, I would think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Moving on to the two people who are largely responsible for the screenplay. They appear to be a writing duo. Um, I normally name these people separately, but literally almost the entirety of their writing credits are identical. So Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman. Mm -hmm. So writing duo and among their credits together, we have Trenchcoat, Doc Hollywood, a TV series called Johnny Bago, Wild Wild West.
2: The the movie with Will Smith?
3: Correct. Okay. Yeah. They have kind of a type. You'll see once I get through the rest of them that there's like kind of a style that they have so wild wild west how the grinch stole christmas last holiday and shrek the third
2: so how the grinch stole christmas was the jim carrey one right correct okay
3: yeah so what is interesting though about the writing credits and i really i need to do a deeper dive to figure out like why this was included this way i mean there are so many uh cartoon characters in this film, both on the Disney side and Warner Brothers side. And like I was telling you, when you were watching the film uh, to date, this is the only film that includes cartoon characters from both companies. Mm-hmm. Now, in addition to everybody I just named, there are two more fellows who have uncredited credits. Ted Osborne and L. Talia Farrow. Okay. So what is so interesting is that they are credited... Uncredited credit for specifically the Huey, Dewey, and Louie Duck characters. Now, these two, these are part of, like, old school, uh, like, the old school animation world. I mean, they have credits going back to 1938. Okay. However, they're all uncredited for Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and they're all, all of their credits are Disney. It's a really weird... Uh, list of credits for both of them. I mean, they are known to be the originators of those specific characters, but all of their credits are uncredited. And even all-
2: through like the DuckTales series, yeah, wow. It's, it's
3: I, I'm wondering if it's like one of those things where it's like they had to would would it would you say retcon, where it's like hmm. they realized that they never got their due for the being the originators of these. I don't know. It's just really, really strange, <laughs> their list of credits. And on top of it, the fact that there are so many cartoon characters in this film and probably so many people that are
1: I, I mean, obviously the
3: originators <clears throat> of all those characters and that these yeah. two gentlemen are specifically called out. For their contribution, I don't. I don't know. It's so just whatever
2: a, fix was necessary for all the other things. They're like, you just got to slap it onto anything that exactly, they've ever. Exactly.
3: Exactly. Like, yeah, it was just really interesting to me. So,
2: and I apologize sincerely, but there were a lot of cartoon characters, and I saw Daffy, and I saw Donald. I don't. I don't even remember where totally, I saw. It. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Where Where were they? I don't know. Maybe at the end? I don't know. We'll find out. Kind of had them all together. Okay, So, moving on to the director, familiar name? We've had him before, Robert Zemeckis. Mm. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, talked about him for a couple of our films all back in season one so if you want to take a dive into either our Romancing the Stone episode or Back to the Future we'd love you to uh he is mentioned prominently in those episodes as well but to do a quick bio on him some of his credits include used cars as I just said, Romancing the Stone, Back to the Future 1, 2, and 3. Um, I didn't realize that actually he was nominated for, he was among the writing group for the original Back to the Future. Okay. Got an Oscar nomination for that. I yeah. don't know if I brought that up before. Uh, one of my favorite dark comedies, Death Becomes Her, mm. so underrated. He won Best Director, his only win, Oscar win for Forrest Gump. Okay. Gets that. Yeah. One of your favorite films, he's the director of Contact.
2: It, it is, and uh, that's what he should got the Oscar for.
3: <laughs> he also, he, you know, likes to work with, uh, well, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. He did What Lies Beneath, likes to work with Tom Hanks. He's the director of- Wait, Cast- was that
2: a title? He likes to work with Tom Hanks? <laughs>
3: That would be a very appropriate title, yeah, for him. I'd watch that. <laughs> he worked with him again on Castaway. Okay. Uh, he worked with him again on the Polar Express. He was the director of flight. I know this one didn't do incredibly well. Welcome to Marwin.
2: Okay, I have I have thoughts <laughs> about this because I watched the the actual documentary. Sure.
3: Oh, I yeah, I remember you talking about and, this. And
2: and that it didn't need to be turned into like a fictionalized movie it was Mm -hmm. it was pretty solid on its own on its own feet so i kind of hope that that it would have done better Mm -hmm. but but yeah
3: but it did not We we did
2: not need that we needed that less than we needed a poltergeist remake
3: i also not to like bag on zemeckis i also think we did not need a remake of his follow-up to welcome to marwin the witches there is a perfectly good and terrifying version of that film already in existence, and I don't think that it needed to be redone.
2: I'm pretty ambivalent about that one.
3: About the original or the remake?
2: My ambivalence spans all of it. I
3: remember watching the original as a kid, and that movie fucking scared me. It was I don't terrifying. think I've
2: ever seen it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen it, so when I saw the the new one, I just thought, oh, That's a thing. I didn't realize it was a remake of something else.
3: Oh, oh, okay. Yes, yes. And then he is in post-production right now on a new version of Pinocchio. So we'll see how that turns out.
2: Well, it's about time. It's about (laughs) time Disney started dipping into their history and making some uh, remakes. That's all they do.
3: So moving on to yet another familiar name. So we've brought this up before ton of filmmakers once they find their groove with collaborators they like to go back to them we just mentioned that Zemeckis and Tom Hanks really like to work together yeah he also likes to work with a couple of the following people we're about to bring up namely the cinematographer on this film Dean Kundi. so still going strong uh currently at 102 cinematography credits he actually received uh, like I said, the nomination for Best Cinematography for this film, for mm. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Diver- diverse- Deservedly so. Yeah. Use my words.
1: <laughs> I thought
2: you were diversifying for a second, diversifying. but you were deservifying.
3: Deservifying. So among his credit, and again, we have brought him up, but let's go through it. The No Mercy Man. I don't know if I brought that one up before, but I just thought that that was an interesting title. Where the Red Fern Grows. Oh,
2: God damn I that. Know.
3: <laughs> no. I know. Uh, a couple of these are real fun. So Evil, My Sister.
1: It's all oh, one title. Yeah.
3: Satan's Cheerleaders. Nice. As you can see, he does a dive into horror. Namely, he is the DP on Halloween, which we just watched days ago.
2: I mean, which one? There's three of them.
3: Correct. He did Halloween. Halloween 2, and Halloween 3, Season of Witch.
2: Oh, uh, so the original. Okay. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He did Rock and Roll High School, The Fog. So he has relationships, as you'll see, with numerous directors. He had a relationship, I'm sure he still does, with Carpenter because he went on to do The Fog. He did Escape from New York. Nice. He did a film called Jaws of Satan.
2: Do you think it's like a spiritual successor to the cheerleaders of Satan?
3: It could... Well, Satan's it's not, cheerleaders. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. So close. Mm, so close. He did the thing. And then... So here comes his Zemeckis connection. He was the DP on Romancing the Stone. He likewise was the DP on Back to the Future 1, 2, and 3. He goes back to collaborate with Carpenter on Big Trouble in Little China. He does Project X, Roadhouse... He comes back to Zemeckis. He's the DP on Death Becomes Her. He now teams up with Spielberg. He is the DP on Jurassic Park. So this is. I a- just
2: uh, want to take a moment to say it's never a bad idea to team up with Spielberg. <laughs> it's probably a good choice.
3: It's interesting, and I could see why Spielberg maybe went with him because, I mean, first of all, Spielberg is an executive producer on. Mm-hmm. Who framed Roger Rabbit? He seems to have that kind of dynamic with Zemeckis. He likes to produce Z- Zemeckis' films. Um, and given how successfully Kundi was able to shoot this particular film, doesn't surprise me at all that Spielberg would pull him onto Jurassic Park because, oh, yeah. again, it was like this innovative film that does a mashup of, you know, real footage and CGI animation, whatever. So
2: Yeah, and similar to Roger Rabbit, like both of those movies still hold up really well. Yeah. Like 2021, you watch either of those and you can you can see how well they they blended the uh like digital and practical effects.
3: Absolutely. Totally agree with you. And I'm not even done with his credits yet. So I'm almost there. All right. Um he shoots Apollo thirteen. So he teams up with Ron Howard. What Women Want. uh, You know.
2: Mm-hmm. What we got.
3: Well, well, I was going to say that it's actually I know that like people get real weird about movies now um, oh. with What's His Face. Oh, um,
2: Mel Gibson. Yeah. Yeah. But
3: it's actually like a pretty good film. I like it. I think it's funny. Anyway.
2: Well, yeah, we we have to at this point be able to kind of. Separate, Yeah. Some, some, some people's degree. personal yeah. lives. Yeah, to the extent that's reasonable. Otherwise, like, I'll just decide, like, okay, I just won't enjoy anything anymore. Yeah. Ever. And
3: I mean, it's not just, I mean, yes, he's the main character in that film. But, like, Helen Hunt, Marissa Tomei, like, the other actors in that film do really, really, like, it's a good movie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's my case for <laughs> what women want. <laughs> Uh, He shot The Holiday, Anastasia. And then currently, he shot a couple episodes of... You just brought this up not too long ago.
2: Oh, yeah. The Book of Boba Fett.
3: There you go. Yeah. So, uh, I think... You know what I think I did do in a previous episode? He has a really fun, like, bio where they're like, one of the most prolific... Like, real, like, kind of over the top. But I'm like, it actually gets backed up by his work. Like, he is pretty legit so another individual who is pretty legit alan silvestri and actually you called this while we are watching the movie without even knowing
2: i mean you can kind of hear it throughout but there's a moment when uh eddie is loading his gun which basically involves talking to the cartoon bullets Mm -hmm. to get them to jump into the gun and the music sounds like something from like back to the future kind of like towards the end when they're trying to get Marty back. Sure. So you can you can like hear some of the similarities in in the uh, music.
3: Yeah, and I don't necessarily think that that is to the detriment of no. a composer. No. I Everybody mean, has a style.
2: You can recognize a John Williams score for the most Absolutely. part. Absolutely. So yeah. like Hans Zimmer, you you kind of get a sense mm-hmm. if you see enough movies that are scored by some of these individuals where you kind of like you can recognize it. And it was it was definitely a good thing. It's positive.
3: I agree. Okay. So again, he has come up in previous episodes, namely the ones I already called out. But <laughs> to, <laughs> to go over his extensive resume of work, uh currently 137 specifically composing credits. Mm-hmm. Among those, we have the TV series Chips. He scored Romancing the Stone. Mm-hmm uh i don't think i included this one last time this is a film title okay get ready how did you get in we didn't see you leave <laughs> <laughs> and there is a question mark in that title
2: oh that's why we haven't heard of it yeah
3: so thought that i i'm like what is that all about but he like you've mentioned he was the composer on back to the future one two and three he did Summer mm. Rental, Flight of the Navigator, Predator 1 and 2.
2: Yeah. You know what? Now that I think about it, I can kind of hear some of those same um, similarities in Predator too. Okay. Yeah.
3: All right. Yeah. I-
2: he he kind of has like this thing when there's like a tense action scene where it's like building up. That's that's where you'll hear kind of like the common, common themes.
3: I mean, I don't know if I'm correct in saying this, but I feel like that's when he really pulls out the strings. Yeah. The strings section. I anyway. think so. Okay, so he did Soap Dish, uh, Father of the Bride went into, the one with Steve Martin, not the original. Uh, He was the composer on Death Becomes Her, The Bodyguard. He got an Oscar nomination for Best Original Score for Forrest Gump.
2: Oh, I definitely thought you were going to say Super Mario Brothers.
3: (laughs) Do I even have that
2: Which he worked on for 1993.
3: (laughs) I uh, didn't have that one. Sorry. There's too many. There's too many. Okay, Uh, so he gets a nom for Forrest Gump which I got to see who actually won for that one because that is a really iconic score.
2: You, like, know why, you know why I brought up Super Mario Brothers? Because Bob Hoskins was in that too. And
3: I do have that down. Okay. I do, we're getting there. I did have him down for that. He scored Judge Dredd, Your Film Contact, hmm. Practical Magic, Castaway, What Women Want, my movie. Uh, the Polar Express gets another nomination, this time though for Best Original Song. So not score, but song. I mean, he's doing pretty okay for himself. He scored the Avengers, Avengers: Infinity War, Avengers: Endgame, another iconic score. He did the Crudes, Ready Player One, hmm. Witches, and then he is the composer on that version of Pinocchio that is in post. And he's moment.
2: he's credited for uh, the Predator Hunting Grounds game that came out like maybe a year ago. Okay, like a uh, online multiplayer shooter. And I think it's probably just the original music. I don't think he did anything like separate for it. They probably just got the rights to that music and put it in the game.
3: Which, by the way, this is such an off-topic comment to make, but you just made me think of it. Perfect. Uh, Because I still have – apologies. I'm not trying to take away from Sylvester Street, but I still have Danny Elfman on the brain because we were at his concert not too long ago. Yeah. And I realized I was listening to a commercial. They uh, got a license, Polyton they use the music from the nightmare before christmas in a peloton commercial
2: well peloton might want to start saving some of their (laughs) some of their dollars there i don't know
3: i was like that is such an interesting pull yeah um okay moving on to the editor who won best editing for this film gentleman by the name of arthur schmidt deservedly so i'd say this is a good win uh Sometimes the Oscars don't get it right. I think they got it right. Yeah. In this case, I don't.
2: I don't know what he was up against, but
3: yeah, let's it's see, hard to imagine. Probably not Pumpkinhead. Probably not Day of the Dead, and probably not They Live. But the, the most recent eighty-eight. How films dare that you! <laughs> but in any case, okay. Among some of his other credits, we have Jaws Two.
2: Okay, that wasn't that wasn't awful. That's not like The Godfather Three of Jaws. <laughs> That would be Jaws 3.
3: (laughs) He gets nominated. So his first nomination was for Coal Miner's Daughter. Okay. He was the gentleman who cut Back to the Future 1, 2, and 3. So Zemeckis, he is extremely faithful (laughs) to his crew. He really likes working with a certain group of people. Uh, Schmidt cut The Rocketeer, Death Becomes Her, as I just mentioned again. Loyalty there. He did Last of the Mohicans. Man, I can't even say the name of that film without my eyes watering. Really? It is (laughs) so heart-wrenching to me. I've seen it a million times, and I still weep openly uh, watching that movie. Okay. He cut Adam's Family Values. He gets another Oscar win for... Forrest Gump. Okay. Now there's a Micah's film. He cut The Birdcage, Your Film Contact, Primary Colors, What Lies Beneath, Castaway, and Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl.
2: Man, that first one was so good.
3: Oh my goodness, it was so good. It was amazing. I didn't really know what I was going into when I went to go see it. I mean, I knew the ride. And so I just remember kind of thinking like... How are they going to make a movie out of a Disney ride? Boy, was I wrong. They, they, they did it. They um, did it. It was so fun. Like, start to finish. I mean, it was just such a joy to watch that movie. It, it's really, really, really good.
2: Quick aside for the 61st Academy Awards Best Film Editing. The nominees were Die Hard, Gorillas in the Mist, Mississippi Burning, Rain Man, and then the eventual winner, Who Framed Roger Rabbit.
3: I think that was kind of like I think so, an yeah. obvious. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> okay. So finally, moving on to the stars of this film. Uh, we are kicking things off with Mr. Bob Hoskins, who you just mentioned. He plays the detective, Eddie Valiant. Am I saying that right? Valiant? Yeah. How would you say it? Valiant. Valiant? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right.
2: I don't know how else I'd say
3: it. Um Valiant. I it just seems like there's a flair to it that I'm not catching. Anyway. Okay. So among Hoskins credits, and he's he's really good in this film. I know that like when I was going through trivia, I mean, I feel like every single person is considered for every single role. Like saying somebody was quote, considered yeah. for a role. It's like, sure, everybody's considered for a role until they finally cast the person. So, you know, so many names were listed. But
2: what are some of the the alternatives? I
3: didn't even write it. It's like Tom Selleck. Probably like I feel. Oh, actually, you know what? The one person I did um, clock was Harrison Ford. Steven Spielberg wanted Harrison Ford, and his price tag was too high.
2: I can't think of something that would make Harrison Ford more miserable. Yeah. I don't think that would be... I think he would hate that.
3: Yes. That's probably why his price tag was too high. He's like, $1 billion. (laughs) What
2: what is it? No, I don't want to do that.
3: (laughs) Although, he would have been good in that role. like. I mean he has also com- comedic sensibility to him. Yeah. So he could have done it. Uh but yeah, it just doesn't sound like his cup of tea. Don't know the guy, but that's just I agree with you.
2: Yeah, are, are there are there I can't think of uh Harrison Ford private eye roles that he's been Nobody
3: would have like that husky voice. He would have kind of that like demeanor about him. He'd be like a legit version of who Steve Martin plays in Dead Man Don't Wear a Plaid.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I guess the problem would be, and maybe this is just me, I would just be looking at Harrison Ford and I wouldn't be looking at anything else. Cartoon. Yeah. 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 He, would, he would take too much of my attention away.
3: In any case, I think Hoskins was a perfect casting choice. So. Yeah. He was great. He was great. And among some of his credits, we have a TV series called Thick as Thieves. Hmm. The film's The Long Good Friday, The Cotton Club. Brazil. He got an Oscar nomination for the film Mona Lisa, Best Actor. So Oscar nominated actor. He was in Mermaids, Hook, your movie, Super Mario Brothers.
2: (laughs) It's not that is not my movie. Okay,
3: okay. That movie
2: is so bad. (laughs) It's uh it's just so bad.
3: Uh he's I think he's credited as Mario Mario.
2: Yeah, I don't I don't know what that's all about.
3: Okay. He's in Nixon, Michael. That um, John Travolta angel movie. Is he? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Enemy at the Gates, Made in Manhattan, Hollywoodland, A Christmas Carol. And then his final credit, because he's no longer with us, Mm. was Snow White and the Huntsman. Also, just beyond his extensive film work, lots of TV appearances over the course of his career. Yeah. Okay. Moving on to Mr. Christopher Lloyd. Still going strong, very strong, two hundred and thirty-eight credits strong. Uh, like he is—he
2: was insanely good in this.
3: Oh yeah, like, Judge Doom. Yeah, so so good. I mean, he he really knows how to turn it up a notch. Like he really dives into these like crazy characters. He's like, you think sense. Doc Brown is crazy? Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, like I said. 238 credits so far, really hard to pare these all down, but I will try. And, you know, again, a lot of these people, he also obviously worked with Zemeckis and Back to the Future, so we do talk about him in that episode from season one, Mm -hmm. so you could go back to that if you were so inclined. If you're not, here are some of his credits. Here's all 200. (laughs) His very first credit, and I probably did bring this up because I just think it's so crazy that this is the very first credit that this gentleman has one flew over the cuckoo's nest crazy that that is crazy i mean literally yeah yeah yeah
2: it's in the exactly
3: um oscar winning film first credit now kind of sort of i was too young but my dad really loved the tv show taxi oh yeah of course like with the most depressing intro music of all time
2: (laughs) they really know how to get you into a comedy kind of mood
3: right (laughs) uh so he is extremely well known for that tv series jim right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. mm-hmm he's so good in that he really is uh he was in mr mom star trek 3 the search for spock he was a klingon so i've heard yeah Yeah, he was the he was the evil (laughs) he was a bad guy matt too he he does really well on both sides of the coin you know like he can be a really fun protagonist and hero type and then he could be a really, really great villain. I mean,
2: he's obviously a villain. Spoilers in Who Framed <laughs> Roger Rabbit, but in Star Trek Three, it was interesting to see him in like this physically imposing, intimidating, violent kind of mm-hmm. villain role. He wasn't like zany or crazy. He was just straight up a bad guy.
3: I think what's interesting about his role in this film is that from like out the gate you know he's not a good dude it's just that you don't know to what degree he's not a good dude yeah like they do not set him up at all like you know the like bait and switch where like they introduce him as like maybe he's actually kind of a nice guy maybe you know? he just takes his job a little too serious yeah I know. like you know from the outset like something's up with this dude you just don't know to what degree yeah. until the very very end okay among some of his other credits the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, Back to the Future, 1, 2, and 3, Clue, Eight Men Out, The Addams Family, and Adams Family Values. I always forget about Clue. Oh, he's Green Clue. Well, everybody's yeah. Green Clue. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that one for sure. Angels in the Outfield. He was on a TV series called Deadly Games. He was in Baby Geniuses. Another TV series called I Dream. Like I, Comma dream. All right. Like I Claudius, but I dream. <laughs> he likes uh the 3D movies. He did Prana 3D and Dead Before Dawn 3D. And then another one that I just had to call out because I think it's a funny title. I wonder if I brought this one up before. I am not a serial killer. Did I bring that one up last time we talked about him?
2: I don't know, but my money is on probably.
3: Because it's like if you have to say I am not a serial killer,
2: you're totally a serial You're killer. Probably
3: a serial killer. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. Moving on. New name, new face. We have Joanna Cassidy, who plays Eddie's love interest, Dolores. A very accomplished actress in her own right, has 173 acting credits on her resume. So, among some of her projects we have a couple tv series earlier in her career one was called 240 robert right. not sure what that alludes to she was in a tv series called buffalo bill not that- sure if that's the serial co- no i'm just kidding or the actual yeah like wild Silence west of the
2: lamb oh yeah Wh- which is it
3: i'm sure it's the wild west because it- this is this precedes <laughs> so okay I'm, I'm gonna guess uh she was in the film 1969 don't tell mom the babysitter's dead vampire in brooklyn chain reaction she's done voice work uh she was a voice on superman the animated series another tv series just straight up actress work uh diagnosis murder
2: that's a bad diagnosis (laughs) if you go to the hospital and you're like what's the diagnosis doc murder then that means you are dead murder yeah
3: uh, she's in the film Ghosts of Mars. And then some of her later TV work, she was on the TV series Six Feet Under, Call Me Fritz, and Odd Mom Out. And then in addition to all of these different kinds of TV series where she had a recurring role, again, as most of these actors do, a lot of TV appearances. Yeah. Like she, one-offs.
2: She was in a I, – I can't remember the character, but she, she was in Blade Runner.
3: Oh, okay. Um,
2: and then she also did a voice for on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh the radio play. James
3: James Bond movie, right?
2: But it's the radio play in twenty fourteen. The the actual movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service was the one James Bond movie that only had like the, the actor was in that role once. Yeah. yeah never yeah, yeah. never came back to it. And that movie is generally known as like the comically worst of the entire uh franchise that's
3: too bad telly
2: sovallis was a great villain though okay yeah kojak I was am the bad not, guy
3: i mean i'm not a big bond person <laughs> not, There are certain franchises i've just never gravitated towards bond is one of them star trek is another <laughs> but moving on moving on <laughs> <laughs> to charles fleischer who I mean, he is the voice of Roger Rabbit and a couple others. He, oh, that's fun. He did, I didn't already write this down, but he did Benny the Cab and then a couple other voices. I don't know if I could peg who these characters were, but they're called Greasy and Psycho. <laughs> okay. But I mean, even as we were. those guys, Are those the Weasels, maybe? I wanna say, yeah. Yeah, I wanna say it's probably the Weasels. Uh, as we were watching the film, I mean, I was commenting to you. I was like, how how does he do this? I mean, it's not the just... The voice work
2: was pretty crazy. It was
3: really crazy, just like the little uh, the little details about the way that Roger speak. Like, I really was in awe of what he could do. Like, I can't do... I mean, that's why I'm not a voice actor. But um, anyway, what is so interesting, though about this actor is that he's hardly just a voice, and i don't mean to say that voice actors are just voice actors but he's n- he's not, not primarily solely, no- yeah, yeah yeah a voice actor i mean he's done a ton of just straight acting work yeah uh so among some of his credits we have the tv series welcome back Kata. is that a carter C- it's
2: cotter yeah welcome cotter, back Cotter. cotter. I mean, some Ka- of them, Mister Kata.
3: Mister Kata. Yeah. I, I think I because I never watched that show. Um, there's one character though, right? Who like really like says the Cutter is the teacher's name, right? I don't know. We're I don't know the show. Okay. A... <laughs> anyway, I am he's familiar on it. with the uh,
2: theme song. <laughs> And uh, Ror- welcome Rorschach, back, or-
3: welcome back. Yeah, R- R- that's the cat. That's the character who I think says it with a certain flair. It's not
2: Rorschach. That's from Watchmen, but uh, it's
3: it's close to rhymes that, with yeah. rhymes
2: with Rorschach.
3: <laughs> okay. So among some of Fleischer's other credits, we have um, a lot. I mean, a lot of film work. Night Shift, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Gross Anatomy. He's in Back to the Future too. He has a bit part.
2: It was Rorschach.
3: Okay, that's really, really close. <laughs> really, really close. He is in Dick Tracy, Straight Talk, My Girl 2, The Polar Express. Wow, there's a lot of Polar Express. A lot of Polar Express. That's what I'm saying. Zemeckis is a highly faithful gentleman. He likes to work with the same people. He's in Zodiac, Funny People, and then also lots of TV appearances. And again, Just want to really emphasize a ton
2: of TV stuff. Oh yeah, like all of your greatest hits of the '80s: Mr. Belvedere, Punky Brewster, Night Court, Night Rider. Sorry,
3: no, don't. No, no, no. Yeah, no, it's crazy. It's. I mean, I don't. I want to give all these people their due diligence, but like when you have a ton of, like, you gotta, you know, pick and choose. But um, that's why usually I just whittle it down to like lots of TV. But anyway, that's why
2: I'm here to take more time up and add a few more. (laughs)
3: all right so a couple more people that we need to cover among them alan tilvern so he plays rk maroon the like studio head guy Mm. if that's you don't wouldn't know him by his name or the character's name um you know once he got to this point in his career this was his penultimate role so this was his second to last credit. Okay. He was later in his career and, you know, did a, I, from looking at his credits, a ton of his work was like in the fifties and sixties. Um, I like wasn't super familiar with a lot of the projects that he was, that doesn't mean anything at all. Um, I tried to pick ones then that I just thought sounded really interesting <laughs> about his career.
2: I like that uh, so, it's a good strategy.
3: Okay, so here we go. Some of his credits. Uh a film called Captain Horatio Hornblower.
2: Oh yeah. You know that? Yeah. I don't know. Everyone that. knows that.
3: What? Yeah. Don't make me feel bad. <laughs> Why? What do you mean everybody knows
2: that? I for for some reason that title is super familiar. Okay, so
3: then Smarty Pants, what's the film about?
2: It's uh it takes place on the ocean. Possibly. On a ship.
3: Okay. You big bluffer. You don't know anything <laughs> about that movie. Anyway, moving on, he was on a TV series called "The Six Proud Walkers." Don't D- know don't it, know but... that one. No. <laughs> uh, among some of his other film work, "The Frozen Dead."
2: Were they walking okay.
3: too? <laughs> no. I'm laughing about the next one. Okay. I'm juvenile. It's not the size that counts. Oh, all right. The film name. Okay, so moving
2: <laughs> on to- no, I was waiting for the sequel <laughs> titled "Motion in the Ocean" or something.
3: Uh, a couple of his TV series: Dixon of Doc Green. Okay, I got it. How do you even say "Pull Dark"? TV series. Oh, okay. He has a bit role in the film Superman. He's second controller. Second controller. <laughs> Meetings with remarkable men. Oh. Another one that's more familiar, Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, yeah. And, again, lots of TV work. He, lots of TV um, appearances.
2: He was the innkeeper. He played the voice, he did the voice for the innkeeper in the 1978 animated version of Lord of the Rings. Oh,
3: okay. Yeah. Okay.
2: Those were bizarre.
3: Cool. Yeah. All right. And then uh, the other actor that, it's crazy, this was also his penultimate role. Um, Stubby K was this gentleman's name. I'm sorry. He, what was his name? Stubby K. Cool. Yeah.
2: That's a fun name.
3: And he played Marvin Acme, who it this is a very in the weeds movie, actually, plot wise. <laughs> and yeah, it, uh, it there's it a, lot a, uh, yeah, a lot going on. Yeah. A lot going on. He is, among other things, the owner of Toontown. I don't know how you're the owner of a town. I guess you can be Schitt's Creek. I, mean, I, I guess it happens
2: it it probably gets complicated but it probably gets sure.
3: complicated but okay and uh his list of credits and again because this was his penultimate role like just uh like the previous actor he hadn't you know the bulk of of his career before this film came along um, some of the titles a little bit more familiar he was in guys and dolls you can't run away from it little Abner uh, some of his TV series love and marriage my sister Eileen the film sex and the single girl okay hmm hold on to your chair here hold on to something I'm gonna try to get through this title <laughs> this is the <laughs> title of a film <sighs> all right can Haram Can Hieronymus Merkin ever forget Mercy Hump and find true happiness?
2: Question mark.
3: Question mark.
2: I Think guess I they got figured that
3: okay. If you can
2: make it, <laughs> if you can make it past the second word in the title, you're not going to give a shit about the question mark. That right? first
3: name man throws you for a loop. But that is a film title. I'm very curious what that's about. Um, it seems like he, like, really gravitated towards interesting film titles. He also was in The Cockeyed Cowboys of Calico County. Hmm. Got some alliteration going on there.
2: Man, I feel like maybe I saw that at one point. Really? That okay. that title is so crazy, it does sound... Familiar? Yeah.
3: The Cockeyed Cowboys of Calico County.
2: Yeah, that... Hmm.
3: Say that five times in a row.
2: I'm not. I'm not going to even try. <laughs>
3: he was in Cool it, Carol. Just like that one.
2: Oh, yeah.
3: <laughs> and then six-pack Annie. So she did a weird. lot
2: of ab stuff.
3: <laughs> she didn't skip ab day. No. All right, so finally... Would you have a whole day for abs? That seemed dangerous. Oh, that would be... Well, you don't you have a whole yourself. day for anything. You don't, like, do leg day all day. Every
2: day. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Okay.
3: So... These two credits are like kind of woven together. Mm. Um, first of all, okay, so obviously, we have to talk about Jessica Rabbit. Obviously, now her singing voice the person who provided the singing voice is not the same person who provided her actual talking voice. The person who provided singing voice is, though, a well known actress, Amy Irving. Okay, so that is Jessica's singing voice. Um I not to at all slight Amy Irving, but I wanted to focus more on Jessica as like her speaking uh I don't even know how you say these things. But like the actor behind her speaking voice. Does she
2: have just the one musical number? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it's fair. really good. Yeah, it's really, really no, good. It's it's good, but it's kind of similar again to Nightmare Before Christmas, where there was like yeah. a split between Danny Elfman yeah. doing more of the yep. singing roles. And then, yeah,
3: that's a great way of putting it. And I don't really understand why Kathleen Turner wasn't credited. She, it's so obvious that it's her. It is like I don't I don't know if that's like them thinking it's like cute or funny or clever. I don't. I just don't get it. Like, why wouldn't you just credit her? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> I'd like to know what the train of thought was behind. I, well, yeah. we're not going to list her. It's weird to me, but
2: I don't I don't get it.
3: I'm going to give her her due diligence. And I mean, I guess she was probably cool with it. But uh, so Kathleen Turner. Yeah. I mean, she has such an identifiable voice. Always has. Yeah. Real sultry.
2: It's, I mean, it's kind of the perfect voice for that character.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I could not think of a single other person who could do it. Tom Selleck. (laughs) So, you know, great voice work, but is primarily known for just her, like, legit acting work. So among uh, some of her credits, we have er very early in her career, the TV series The Doctors. She was on that for a long time. Uh, Lots of credits on that one, but primarily film work. Body Heat, The Man with Two Brains, Romancing the Stone, Pritzi's Honor, The Jewel of the Nile, Peggy Sue Got Married, which I really like. Or did we, she? We got to do that, that one. That
2: is then. part of the title. It is. It,
3: okay. <laughs> the Accidental Tourist, The War of the Roses, V.I. Warshawski, Serial Mom. She also was in Baby Geniuses. She was a very different kind of movie in The Virgin Suicides. She has a really great stint on friends uh the tv series mm. that's a fun one Marley and me she then also more recently she was on the show californication and then she has re-teamed with michael douglas on the kaminsky method all right so okay derek yeah film synopsis
2: oh we got what what can we possibly have for this? <laughs> this is not going to be as succinct as Day of the Dead.
3: Okay. Are you a betting man? I'm not. <laughs> okay, I will just read the synopsis. <laughs> a toon-hating detective is a cartoon rabbit's only hope to prove his innocence when he is accused of murder. All right. That's not bad.
2: <laughs> it's pretty, good, it's pretty actually. good. Yeah,
3: it's pretty good. Because um, you can't spoil the
2: stuff, you know, like you don't want to.
3: Yeah. I mean, they probably could if they really wanted to maybe could have thrown in the. Romantic relationship angle, primarily between, I would say, Roger and Jessica, they could have thrown in Judge Doom and how he's on their trail could have thrown in the whole like
2: movie but part overall, of it,
3: but overall, it sounds
2: like the same person who wrote the Day of the Dead synopsis was also commissioned to write this one. <laughs> they did a great job.
3: Yeah, no, great, great job.
2: Yeah. Um. Are there any montages? I don't. I don't think, think so. there
3: are. <laughs> I mean, I do clock that yeah. when we're watching movies. Um. No, I don't think there. Well, I mean, the only thing you can maybe. No, no, it's not a montage. No. Nope. Um, okay, so no, but I do have one last fun fact before okay. we jump into our conversation. So this is no surprise at all. I just wanted to like we can't name every single person that has worked on this tremendous film. We but try,
2: we try, but we, we, can't. we try. Yeah.
3: Three hundred and twenty-six animators worked full time. On this movie, mm-hmm. eighty-two thousand frames of animation were drawn. Yeah, and approximately one million drawings. So not not like the actual frames of animation, but just like when you're in kind of like the previs pre-production um, stage of filmmaking. You know, you're doing drawings and that sort of thing. So w- over one million drawings done.
2: Well. What I had heard was that typically for like cartoons of that era, it would be like maybe twelve or thirteen frames per per second. Versus, I think mm. film would be like twenty four, mm-hmm, maybe. Mm-hmm. So they actually intentionally like doubled it up for the animation to make it blend in more smoothly with like the live action, so that it would all fit together.
3: So, a lot. It was a lot of work. A lot of work yeah. to get this film made. Yeah, always a lot of work to get any film made. But this one, yes. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into it with our special guest, Jonathan. Let's do it. All right. We are so very excited to have with us today, filmmaker Jonathan Waisaki. Jonathan is the writer director of Drama Rama, which happens to be his feature film directorial debut. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
3: We're really excited about this one. I mean, this is definitely... I mean, we've... Okay, so in all fairness, we've had animation, Transformers, um, (laughs) but this is is definitely a one of a kind type of film that we haven't covered before. So we are thrilled to dive in. And as I normally do, first question for you, Jonathan, do you have... A recollection of seeing this film for the first time, and if so, what was your response to it?
0: Oh yeah, so definitely. So I was, uh, I was one of those children who were was just obsessed with Disney. Um, I I had you know a map of Disneyland on my wall.
1: Oh, uh,
0: when I was a little kid, I. Transformed in my imagination, the backyard into every single attraction that was at Disneyland.
1: Wow! <laughs> wow! And I would
0: like, quote unquote, ride the rides by being like, "Okay, I'm going to get you know." It's like, the, like there's a peach tree, and the peach tree was like Snow white scary adventures, and then I would like, oh my God. I would amazing. like get on the ride and like ride around as if I was on the ride. Um, so I was really obsessed when I was a kid with all things Disney. I had a subscription to Disney magazine.
3: Oh.
0: Um I didn't and even know there
3: was a Di- I mean oh, I should yeah. have assumed. It was a yeah. quarterly <laughs>
0: magazine and it had, you know, everything about upcoming attractions and movies and of course, you know, this is uh pre-internet and mm. so uh if you wanted to know what was going on with what's coming down the pipeline at Disney, you, you know, you could get it from this magazine. And so I was very aware of this film because it had been in development basically for all of the Mm eighties. Um, and I, and they were, they were hyping it big time on, you know, through all of the sort of Disney resources Mm -hmm. because it was, unprecedented in terms of how expensive it (laughs) it was and i i think that the risk factor was so off the charts that they were like we have to promote the shit out of this this thing and so i you know i was just very it's sort of i feel like every my memory of it is when it came out that year it had already been presented as a landmark film before it was even released mm-hmm. if that makes sense uh and i think i was 11 maybe um and i you know i definitely saw it multiple times in the movie theater uh because it was an event film with a capital e
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i'm curious so you said that you were a disney kid were was it you were a disney kid or did you come from a disney family
0: Oh no! It was just me. <laughs> oh,
3: that's huh. interesting. What? It was just
0: me. Yeah. What? I mean, my my parents would. You know, we we lived in Southern California. We, that's where I grew up, and so we would. You know, be taken to Disneyland, and my brother certainly likes Disney and still loves mm-hmm. Disney. He actually likes Disney probably more now than I do.
3: <laughs> okay. All right. He
0: sort of had a reverse Flip-flop. journey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, this was. I was a very like. I had a very hyperactive imagination as a child. And um, like I, I, I imagined entire imaginary characters that were in imaginary movies that I had created.
3: <laughs> you went into the right field of work.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because part of me is, part of me wonders every once in a while why I didn't, I had an opportunity after college to actually go into Disney animation, not as an animator, but in the sound
3: team. Oh, okay.
0: And I was... I, I was so terrified at being locked into a feature film for four years
3: mm, yeah. that
0: I didn't do it. And, I, and sometimes I wonder, because I had been such a Disney person, if I should have gone down that route and gotten my foot in the door. And by the way, that film, that, that was that four-year film, that was Treasure Planet. Oh, which was a total bomb,
2: yeah. but, but kind of a cool movie. <laughs> but yes, it did not uh, succeed in the box office.
0: Yeah. So, I, you know, I think maybe I dodged a bullet there spending four years of my life working on a bomb.
3: It is definitely a different kind of commitment for anything animation related, for sure. Yeah. Um, we have a couple of friends that work. In animation, and yeah, like when you come onto a project, you're on it for multiple years at a time. Um, so you really, really have to love it, I would yeah, assume. Absolutely. Um, so, and I'm sorry that I'm so fixated on this whole like general Disney thing, but like <laughs> when, so prior to Roger Rabbit, were you then? Would you have considered yourself an aficionado? of Disney films? Like, did you know all the previous Disney movies? Yes.
0: I collected them all on VHS the moment they came out. So I had a, I had a library of them and I would, um, I would watch one every Friday after school.
3: Okay. All right.
0: I was, I was in it, in it.
3: (laughs) You know what I used to love? Those clamshell. Cases.
0: That's what they were. Oh, yes. They were so yeah. awesome. They were, they were these white, <laughs> yeah. were these yes! giant white clamshells. Yes! I still have all of them in my uh, childhood bedroom. They're all sitting there on the bottom shelf. They were premium.
3: They were so yes. cool. I and, love them. And, so and the other yeah. funny
0: thing is that each one was it, it was called like the classic collection. Mm-hmm. And so even bef- even if it was a brand new movie that didn't do well at the box office, it was still part of the classic collection. <laughs>
3: that's good marketing' <laughs> it was really
0: good marketing really really good marketing
3: well okay so we're, for sure we're going to get into like the story and the individual characters of this film but from the perspective of being a disney fan I know that this was really hyped for you and I mean maybe it was successful in this regard but like did you feel satisfied that you got your disney fix from this film
0: yeah that's a really good question i i remember enjoying it a lot. And I think, I think the most exciting element of all was the fact that they had Warner brothers characters and Mm -hmm. Betty Boop and all of these non Disney properties that were interacting with the Disney properties throughout the entire film. Like for, for whatever weird reason, I was also the kid who watched cartoons every single day when I came home from school and then watched cartoons all Saturday morning. And then even watched the bad cartoons on Sunday morning. If you remember like mm-hmm. the, the real B level cartoons were Sunday morning. <laughs> uh, and so, so I was, you know, I, I had a pretty deep bench in terms of my cartoon love as well. And so really the thing that I loved the most was watching all of these properties that would never, ever have existed side Mm -hmm. by side before all interacting with each other. That was extremely exciting to me.
2: I don't think I even appreciated how wild that was until like the, our rewatch and like seeing like Donald and Daffy, like seeing the characters. And I think they, they had to, they had to like have equal screen time, but seeing them interact, like seeing Mickey and bugs Mm -hmm. contemplate Mm -hmm. how to kill this human Mm -hmm. falling Mm -hmm. off a building was, was really amazing.
0: It was. And, and I think that, you know, I, from my understanding, part of why like a, you know, this, this film is has had kind of a funny licensing legacy in the age of streaming and all the things that are going on is because there were so many cooks in the kitchen from different entities uh, and also why it, this kind of thing never happened again Mm -hmm. Uh, because it was, you know, it was a real feat that uh, I'm pretty sure it was Spielberg himself that was able to pull off the yeses that he got for all of the different licensing uh, elements. But then the fact that Spielberg is the, you know, one of the main producers on the film and is not, you know, obviously a Disney property himself. It has also led to the kind of rocky legacy of how and when you can watch this <laughs> this movie, um, and because there's just a lot of people that have have a piece of the pie yeah. in terms of how this is sh- shaken out, and I think a lot of people didn't really know where this would all sort of end up in terms of the you know the future of film being online in these weird. Uh, sublicense situations. Uh, so, cause you know, cause Disney doesn't own 100% of this film.
1: Yes. Um, yeah.
0: And, uh, and you know, I all it also, as you know, the monster of Disney grew mm-hmm. <laughs> and continues to grow, mm-hmm. it's also very interesting to me that what they did in this film, in some ways, as a mistake, because you know, it was such a nightmare for them to deal with these properties later down the line that what they ended up doing as a corporation is just buying everything.
2: That is their number one answer. That's
0: their MO. Yep. You
3: know, (laughs) they're like,
0: um, they're like, we're not going to negotiate a movie like this again. We're just going to buy these companies.
3: (laughs) Well, and I hope this isn't too much of a stretch to make the comparison, but I think it, kind of gave a glimpse into what has happened down the road with all of these like superhero characters. Yes. And especially like the character of Spider-Man. And like <laughs> Sony's
2: like we're never going to let exa- you go. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly.
3: Yeah. And both people on the filmmaking side but even now fans are savvier about what that all entails in terms of the business and company component and who owns what and Like, I just find that interesting that now that has like really kind of come to the forefront in some ways. Um,
2: Well, you'll be happy to know that Who Framed Roger Rabbit is available (laughs) to stream on Amazon Prime. At the moment. Yeah. Yeah. At the moment. Yeah. Oh,
0: interesting. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So that, no, I I hadn't even thought about that.
2: Now that I realized the connections with Disney, I'm kind of surprised that we, that it wasn't like a Disney plus thing, but that Mm -hmm. makes sense because they don't Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. full ownership.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, and and uh I, I'm just gonna I, I'm putting this together because I'm building off of off of Anna's uh observation here, which is the interesting kind of delicious irony that Jug Judge Doom's basically buying through yeah. Cloverleaf, all of these entities in order to have full domination of everything. And that's, you know, sort of the villainous aspect that of this story. That is really funny. And it's just very it. ironic in terms yep. of what Disney basically has done. I mean, when Disney acquired Fox, I could not, I fell off my chair. I could yeah. not believe that, that the, you know, <laughs> the US government was like, oh yeah, that sounds fine. They That seems like they're going to keep, you know, competition alive and well now that they own all these other properties as well as Fox. Like it, it really, uh, it's really shocking to me.
2: Uh, fun fact: I was I was an employee of Fox for about two weeks before that news became oh, uh,
3: public. Yeah, that. Sorry.
2: I completely
3: agree with you.
2: I'm in a better place now, but that was rough.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's. I was shocked as well, and I just it made me sad for cinema. Yeah. Because, I mean, and we could definitely go down a whole rabbit hole with that. Ah, Oh. Rabbit hole. Um, (laughs) but, (laughs) But, yeah, it just, I thought that it was really sad for people who love films and love making films. And to me, it was just such an obvious money thing for a group of people, Murdochs, who really didn't need to, like, they can't even begin to spend all the money that they already have prior to this. Well, to tie it back to
2: your uh, Avengers (laughs) discussion, like it was, it was like, I kind of got it, but also it was kind of gross. How many people were celebrating the, the acquisition just so they could get their X-Men back.
3: Yeah. 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 That too. Okay. Well, (laughs) I mean, it, it's really interesting from the, the business side of it. And I think these are things that again, even just fans, have become savvier about. And that maybe wasn't the case. Again, we're talking over 30 years ago um, with this particular film. But I'm curious because... So you were already a love of all things Disney. And this film was heavily promoted. So once you're watching it, what... Because this, to my knowledge, like, I mean, Jessica Rabbit and Roger Rabbit are new characters
0: correct yeah
3: so obviously they it's who framed roger rabbit they figure so prominently in the film as a kid who already has a love for animation and disney what was specifically your response to these characters
0: yeah i mean i i it's funny because i readily accepted them and enjoyed them and i was you know they 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 worked really hard to continue to make Roger Rabbit a thing. Mm -hmm. And they put out, I think three shorts after this that came before feature films um, to just keep that character alive Mm -hmm. and well as like the new character. But it's really interesting. The sort of chicken and egg scenario. When I look back on it, I'm like, did I love Roger Rabbit because he was, forced on me mm-hmm. by the company as this giant new property that they really needed to make it, him work or did I genuinely think he was a a great character and the same thing with her right mm-hmm. it, and um i would you know when you're a kid you you just sort of accept things but i in in rewatching the film for this podcast i was like oh i wonder I wonder if I would have been as if I would have have embraced them as much now if the film had just been dropped as I did then.
3: No, it's a it's a great kind of like thing to think about because you're it, it does again bring in all these different factors about the way that the film is marketed, the fact that you're a child. And so Roger you know,
2: is definitely more a kid directed, yeah, oh, which yeah. is interesting in like the context of the movie overall, where there are so many like adult ish moments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Roger Rabbit is is like a throwback to just like a like wacky, silly cartoon character.
0: Yes.
3: So that uh, thank you. That's a great point you brought up, Derek. Because I'm curious. So you said you saw this in the theater, presumably. I'm oh, guessing yeah. with your parents, or
0: Ye- yes, I'm sure they came. Yeah.
3: Do you have any recollection at all, or upon like viewing it this most recent time, like thinking about as a kid what jokes hit with you and what what,
0: <laughs> oh, what
3: did, like what you caught as yeah, far as no, like the adult humor?
0: The 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 burned into my brain was the patty cake joke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I I thought it was like the most hilarious clever thing ever because you know the 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 the, the first scene is so I, I remember it being so uncomfortable because it was like so clearly sexual yeah and I feel like I was just holding my breath throughout the, that entire moment and then when the reveal happens and you know you see the actual photos and and, you know, there's sort of the clever way in which you're watching animation being animated with the yeah. photos, the way that he, he goes through, flips through them. I just howled with laughter. It was like this, it was like this amazing release because it was like, oh, this is
3: <laughs> patty cake. <laughs> it's patty cake. It's literally <laughs> patty
0: cake. Um,
3: and
2: as, uh, as he was taking the photos of it, as Eddie was taking the pictures, he's like, you got to
0: be kidding me.
3: Yeah. Which made me wonder, like, oh my god, what what are you looking at? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, no. And she, you
0: know, she's like groaning. Yes. And like, it's it is very sexualized.
3: It it absolutely is. And I'm thinking to myself, because, you know, I'm trying to remember myself what I thought of this film as a child. And it it's definitely. Market. I mean, it's like listed on IMDb as a family film (laughs) and there are parts of it. And it's like you do kind of lean towards that because it's like, well, it's animated. It has Mickey Mouse in it, you know, and so you are kind of thinking that way. But there is a lot of adult humor to it. And I was telling Derek that I think I appreciate it much, much more as an adult because I'm like, the, that joke in particular, that's a perfect example. Like, as a kid, I probably was like, oh, okay, patty cake. But not really realizing the implications of, like, that, you know, the dichotomy of what they were kind of making you believe was happening and then what the actual reveal was. Like, I don't think that quite hit home with me. Um, and as an adult, I find it much funnier. Yeah. So, I...
0: I mean, there's there's a prostate joke in the film that I don't remember at all. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, I, I, I've seen this film many times. And this was the first time that I was like, oh my God, that, that, you know, this is, that is the probate. It's the probate prostate. And Roger like talks about taking pills and drinking water.
3: Got it. And then he's
0: like, not, not prostate probate. Uh, And I was like, this is, this is not in my memory. <laughs> Way over my head, definitely. When I was a kid,
2: any of the uh, baby Herman jokes,
3: yes, are
0: yeah. like, wait, what? What did that? What did, what did, that, did that baby
3: just say? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like the- oh, please and, go ahead.
0: And no, and there, there, you know, this is also like the Christian, the Christian kid, former Christian kid in me, uh, definitely clocked that when. um when the shoe gets put in the dip. Oh. He goes he go uh um Eddie goes Jesus.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and,
0: you know, again like for the time I feel like, you know, that's I mean it's all of these things add up to why Michael Eisner was adamant that this had to be under the Touchstone banner and not mm. under Walt Disney mm-hmm. Pictures because they were so, you know, with family values and all the stuff that was going on, like they, they were definitely wanted to brand it as a touchstone picture and not as a Walt Disney production.
3: Makes sense. I mean, can we please talk about that shoe scene? That was like, cause again, it had been a minute since that, I that's watched it. Oh, that's what was burned
2: into my memory. The, I remembered that. And oh. when it happened again, I'm like, oh, it's worse than I imagined.
3: It is heart wrenching. I mean it I mean and I mean that in the best way. Like mm-hmm. they make the murder of a shoe, you- an animated shoe, <laughs> like bring you to tears. Like yes, I yes. I felt that so hard. And again, I mean it that's why the film is so interesting. And to your point about ensuring that it's, you know, considered a touchstone film between even the opening even that you know extended animation open the violence you know and it does yeah. bring me back to kind of my days as a kid you know you talked about you know being a big uh cartoon person and I was too and just thinking about the level of violence that was just very natural mm-hmm. uh to watch as a child Tom and Jerry and yet um, I've never thrown knives at a single person this is true <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> And so it's just so fascinating to me all these different elements because yes between like the sexuality. And now, okay, so we're going around the table with like what we remember from first impressions. I remember Jessica Rabbit's intro. That's Yeah. That's my lasting memory mm-hmm. of the film as a child. And also, again, a very sexualized scene and I mean anything with her. But um between the sex and the violence What a movie. Well, I mean, I just find it really interesting. I can't at all claim to have any sort of exhaustive knowledge of the way that animation had been used prior in terms of, you know, that those instances of violence or sexuality. But I mean, I remember just like, again, Disney movies. So, like, I think I don't know if I, I have the right to say this, but it feels groundbreaking in a lot of different ways.
0: Yeah. I think that, I mean, I, one of the things I really appreciated in the rewatch was that the, the violence of the tunes is actually real violence to humans. Mm -hmm. And that, that aspect I think is so interesting because in tune world, like you can be cut up into 20 pieces and then be put back together again.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But in in when the tunes are in the human world, that violence can actually physically impact the humans. And I thought that was a really interesting choice where the stakes become much higher because, you know, the the piano falling from <laughs> from the sky can kill your brother. Uh, or, you know, the cannon that the duck feud, you know, pulls out during the dueling pianos can actually blow up the building like it's mm-hmm. uh I I thought that was very interesting because it it kind of it kind of you know digs into the the cartoon violence which has always been kind of put under a microscope for generations of you know how brutal and violent they are and it's all sort of played for laughs and that they purposefully chose to Kind of ride that line a little bit more by saying, "Oh no, this is real violence for humans. Like mm-hmm. this, this is actually real danger."
2: Yeah,
3: that's an amazing point. Yeah, I didn't really think about it in that way. And even just like um, towards the end of the film, is it Doom himself who is coming after Eddie with like that saw? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like those kinds of things where you're like, "Oh no," if he actually gets to him with that saw, he's probably he really yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. He will kill him. Um, no, that's an amazing point. And then I think what while you were talking about that, then that's what makes the dip the right? It's their only weakness except for laughter. That's true too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, That's we can a, talk about them. <laughs>
3: the, yeah, let's talk. I mean,
0: I feel like Derek definitely is interested in talking about <laughs> the weasels and what has happened, what happens well, to them.
3: Was that scene effective for you? I'm really curious. This whole dying of laughter.
0: Yeah, i i don't I don't even remember that as a kid. And rewatching okay. it, I felt like it was not interesting. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> So for me, it wasn't it wasn't the fact that he did this like kind of, I guess, successful little act to get them to laugh themselves to death. But what I thought was hilarious was that when they would die, these little like tuned souls already with harps would just kind <laughs> of like flowed out. And a couple of them were like, I guess, running away from the light and pu- trying to pull their soul back in. Right. Yes. So just- <laughs> Just the way that they like characterized like the, the outcome of it was more interesting to me than the fact that he was actually like using this as a as a way to get out of their jam they were in.
0: Absolutely. No, the 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 the, 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 the little angels with harps was definitely yeah. <laughs> much more entertaining than the dying of laughter part. Uh and, yeah. and, and you know and also like I think you know it it it's a throwback to those old cartoons yeah. from yeah. the 40s and 50s yeah. where you would have you know, you would have depictions of heaven and whatnot and and the afterlife and death in these very, you know, sort of cheesy, funny ways.
3: No, totally agree with you. And yeah, I both both of your points I definitely agree with. Like I I think the problem I had with like that being a tactic that Eddie was using is that I didn't feel like that was set up, that you could you yes. could kill a tune yeah. by doing that. Totally. So that's why I was like, Oh, this is kind of a weird way of solving this problem. I bet yes. they're not and even
2: really dead. I bet it, it's just like, that's the like very action the same way that Roger had to react to the shave and haircut two bits yeah, uh-huh, like, or right. the, or the like stars or the, like the Tweety birds, like, I feel like they might come back at some point, but that's just like they they have these reactions that are almost always for like some comic value. Mm-hmm. So they, because Christopher Lloyd kind of like, Doc, Judge Dooms, almost called him Dr. Doom, Dooms <laughs> kind of like talked it into existence by saying like, don't you're going to laugh yourself to death.
3: Yeah, real quick to kind of yeah. justify the fact that it could happen. Yeah. Happen, yes, but- yeah. I will say this, though. The thing that I... Now that we're kind of on this, um, the one thing that I thought was interesting is Roger says to Eddie, I think a couple times, that the purpose of his existence, like t- the tunes' existence, is to make people laugh.
1: Yeah.
3: And so I find it interesting that to get tunes to laugh means you might be killing them.
1: Mm.
2: Does
3: that make any sense? Is that yeah. going just too deep? I don't... <laughs>
2: I mean, I don't think Doom was funny at all.
3: Doom was not funny at all. Yeah, yeah, he was legitimately terrifying. But I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. I just thought that, yeah, that was no, kind of an interesting. I think,
0: I think there's like a, yeah, the, in, in terms of the logic of mm-hmm. the world and how it's functioning, it's it's it definitely kind of, the more you think about it, opens up a loophole that makes yeah. be problematic. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm Okay, so... We've talked about kind of where you were with the animated characters and your response to Roger and Jessica. For you as a kid watching this movie, were you pretty focused primarily on the animated characters and what was going on with them? Or how did you respond to you know, we've talked about him at length now. Um, Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom, and then Bob Hoskins, the the pro- main protagonist of of the. Film. Yeah,
0: you know, it's funny. I feel like, I feel like, I was most interested in recognizable animated characters doing mm-hmm. anything in a movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. interacting with this all the new characters that I had never known before, and. I I definitely remembered, you know, the when when he goes to Toontown when he finally makes that crossover, like that was I was at the height of my interest in in everything mm-hmm. that was going on. Um, and it's funny because in rewatching the movie, they're really for you know their their budget is one hundred percent in the effects, yeah, uh, and. They really, there really aren't that many locations in this movie. You're, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're either in a bar or at Eddie's office or in the final warehouse. There's, it's not really a showy movie in terms of the, the set pieces that Mm -hmm. are, that are kind of happening in it. And I think I do remember that being boring to me as a kid.
3: Mm, Okay. Mm. And
0: the, you know, the sort of like, You know, the hardened detective and this sort of a thing was, was like mildly entertaining compared to the, the, the integration of all of the cartoons.
3: Yeah, I would say that the type of character that Eddie was... I mean, eventually, I had a little bit more appreciation, but that came like way down the road. When, <laughs> namely, maybe when I was like in grad school and uh, like you know watching noir and things like that, and yeah, um, and kind of understanding where that type of character kind of comes from. Um, so,
0: I mean, I his mean, his first line is brilliant when he <laughs> when he's just like tunes. <laughs> Like you get everything out of yeah. that, you know, it's like, and it's a, you know, it's a great performance. And I, I would agree with you. I appreciate all of the wonderful integrations of, you know, basically 1940 cinema that mm-hmm. that they're sort of alluding to in the film that were just not interesting to me at all when I was 11 years old.
2: What do you think about the, um, <laughs> the going rate for doing some private eye work? <laughs> Because we we did uh, some quick math and it looked like he was getting like maybe twelve thirteen hundred dollars. They $1. were so
3: blown away by the fifty dollar check, like uh. it was.
2: <laughs> uh. He tried using I mean, that fifty dollar check to get on a train, and the guy's like, "Get
3: out of here!" <laughs> right. <laughs> it was such an interesting little part of it, and we're like, "Is fifty dollars really that yeah. crazy of an amount of money?" Like it was um, for the. 40s. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Nineteen forty-seven.
0: Absolutely. What, I did mean, you, you know, it's
3: like twelve hundred, like dollars for
0: the hundred dollars. Yeah, would be like twelve. Oh, yeah. in
3: total, Gotcha. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, the uh, this is like a total sidebar, just because we're talking about the time period. But the other, the other sort of thing I thought was interesting as someone who was obsessed with Disney, uh, is that you know this film is late forties, and this is their you know the kind of their tentpole picture, and then two years later they do Dick Tracy, which is nineteen thirties. And then the year after that, they do the Rocketeer, which is also mm. 1930s, and they they really put the 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 big giant tentpole projects that they were greenlighting were all these 1930s and 40s settings,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: which definitely I think correlated to the age of the executives and what they were oh. nostalgic about in terms That's of their own childhoods, and they you know they just kept. Greenlighting these stories that were set, you know, in, in this time period that most children would have no connection with whatsoever, uh, and and I just I found that interesting that you know it it really kind of shows in a way how much nostalgia is a factor in terms mm-hmm. of projects getting greenlit a lot of the time that if it's something that was, you know, is really meaningful to an executive's childhood that they're, uh, you know, much more likely to think that it's going to be a, a perfect tentpole project to put out there. Uh, but That's you know, fascinating. I, I yeah. think that that aspect is just, it's, you know, it's just interesting because, uh, I think, you know, California adventure was also like this as well when they built that park the, you know, the first iteration of that park was all 1930s, uh, and, and everything that they did was an allusion to when Disney started his studio, and, you know, people walked into that park and were like what? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like, I mean, you know, they, they had an actual, you know, there's the red car and then there's, you know, the, the Carthay circle, which is, you know, the a movie theater that doesn't exist anymore. Cause they tore it down because Los Angeles tears down everything. Uh, and, and, and there were all of these, you know, really rich illusions for a historian that just didn't translate to the public because people just aren't that interested in history, you know? Yeah. And so, so I think, you know, from, for, for someone that really loves, you know, cinema history and just, you know, history in general, the, the, the details in something like Roger Rabbit are definitely kind of rich and fun. But, but I do question whether or not they, they are interesting and or entertaining to them average person
3: <laughs> i mean you just brought up so many great points um first of all i think i'd like to go to disneyland with you because
1: yeah. I, <laughs> I
3: like you would be a fascinating person i mean derek and i do love going but um i feel like you would be able to like just nerd this- nerd out <laughs> yeah it would be so fun to go with you anyway so that's that's one and two I think you raised a really great point about this idea of nostalgia that's specific to certain people who can make the decisions about Mm. what films are made and what that means for an audience. Because, I mean, again, I can appreciate it as an adult, but as a kid, I, I know for a fact that didn't like mean anything to me the the fact that it was set in like 47 i think that that was not
2: yeah like all you wanted you wanted to see the live action mixed with animation and it didn't matter the fact like if anything it was probably it probably took away from like the enjoyment in a small tiny way just because you weren't interested in Mm -hmm. that time period Mm
0: -hmm. right i guess like the flip side though you know now that i think about it when i think about dick tracy like that was my dad's childhood. And sure. he, I think he saw that movie five times. Wow. And, and, you know, I of course was obsessed with it because it had Steven Sondheim soundtrack and, and Madonna. And I was just like, <laughs> like, like, that's all I cared about. And yeah. I was like, you know, whatever this man with his watch running around. Um, but his Apple watch, this guy in his Apple watch, <laughs> uh, but, But, you know, clearly it for, you know, for my dad who really didn't care at all for animated films, like my mom was the one who would take us to animated films and he'd be like, I'm going to see the Cotton Club. Um, (laughs) Like it, 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 it hit something for him big time in terms of that childhood nostalgia. And so maybe that was the brilliance of these movies is that they were getting. The adults who, yeah, were that you know who who had that nostalgia for that time period, and then putting in enough, you know, Roger Rabbit, mm-hmm. cuckoo stuff for the kids to also be engaged.
2: I just uh, have to think that so the nostalgia was the time period and these like classic kind of screwball type of cartoons, and then one guy's like. But also we want this one cartoon to be drawn in a way that people might want to have sex with her.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> well,
3: oh, should mean, we start she's... talking
0: about Jessica Rabbit? <laughs> well, well,
3: well, yeah, let's get into it. I mean, here's the thing about Jessica Rabbit is that she also I mean, yes, she is a very sexy, very attractive cartoon, but she also still. I mean, comes if you're into that, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> she still comes out of that noir. I mean, she is. I That's think part of it. Yeah. She's yeah. based off of several different kinds of characters like Veronica Lake yeah. um, and the character specifically like Gilda. Um, so she still comes out of that part of she's not f-
2: bad. She's just drawn that way. <laughs>
3: Which, what a great line. Yeah. I mean, so, so fun. And I mean, actually, you know what? Derek and I were talking about this. Jonathan do you have any insight into why they would not have credited Kathleen Turner for that role?
0: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I don't, I don't know why, because it was, it was definitely all over the, you know, the reviews. Like it was, Mm -hmm. it was definitely not something that, I mean, I bet you, if anything, it might've been, maybe it was an intentional surprise. Because she was such a big star at that point in her life. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously I'd worked with Zemeckis in uh, Romancing the Stone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I also remember, again, looking at Dick Tracy a couple years later, that all of those amazing celebrities that are part of the criminals with, you know, their, their crazy makeup in Dick Tracy... Were also you know like Dustin Hoffman, mm-hmm. they were also not credited or publicized, and okay. so it was it was also kind of a strategy of like a surprise factor in a way uh, that maybe maybe is the reason why they didn't credit her is is so that it would be uh, you know a a sort of pleasant surprise.
3: Okay, I could totally see that. The, yeah. The,
0: the other sort of interesting thing that I did not know uh, is that. Uh, the song that she sings is actually Amy Irving singing. Yes,
3: the uh, the only reason why we knew that is because of the research that we did preparing for the podcast. Yeah, but I had no same. idea. Yeah, yeah, had no idea. And I mean, good on Amy Irving. She's has an amazing singing voice. I mean, I, already I knew she was a great actress, but
0: I had no idea she could sing.
3: No idea. Um, and I think that I mean, look that intro. Is a great intro, great song, great scene. It is just like she has like the one number Mm -hmm. and then the rest of her appearance in the film is just, you know, her speaking and that sort of thing. So I get why now at this point, Kathleen Turner does get the attention that she does. I feel a little bit bad. For Amy Irving, <laughs> she probably, probably like all of us, uh, we just admitted that we had no idea that it was her. <laughs>
0: I mean, we there's also the, another factor I just thought of that is, again, nerdy D- Disney knowledge, but this is pre-Aladdin. Oh. Mm-hmm. And Robin Williams really changed forever how animated films are marketed in terms of the voice talent behind the animation Yeah, in that prior to Aladdin animated voices, even if they were, you know, celebrities were just, it was, I don't know if, I don't know if it was seen as like semi shameful because you don't actually get to be on camera or if it was just not something that I don't know what it was, but for whatever reason, like, it was it was just not something you knew about, and then flash forward to now, when all the animated films are, particularly the non Disney ones, mm-hmm. are marketed. The celebrities' names are all over the trailer. Like it's, oh,
3: totally. It yeah. is.
0: It's a. It's a completely flipped side. You know, I never saw that. What is that Sing movie or whatever? Sing Two is
2: coming out, and all the billboards <laughs> yeah. are like the character and who's the actor and side by side. They yes. yeah.
0: And so, I you know, I think Disney, Disney and Pixar in particular, still like to populate their voice talent with the correct actor for the role, and mm-hmm. that may not be a movie star. And so, they're less likely to to promote that because you know they're more interested in matching the right voice talent for the role than in just having celebrities all over the map.
1: But (laughs) But that is definitely
0: not the case with other animated studios that are very much putting the celebrities in front and center.
3: You bring up such a great—I mean, that is a great point. Who
2: am I to say that Chris Pratt can't be a good Mario? (laughs) I don't—I don't know.
3: It might—it might might work out brilliantly. I mean, and to your point, Jonathan, you know, like I was thinking about that as you were kind of like talking about this like switch, and you know, there are some actors, and it's only because they had already established themselves. To be individuals who could like really kind of take on maybe a little bit more of, of bombastic personalities, like I think both Mike Myers and Eddie Murphy were exactly the right call for the Shrek movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like things like that. But yeah, there's like a lot of animated movies now where I'm like, okay, I guess like that's Seth cool Rogen that... is
2: Donkey Kong. I think that's inspired. Yeah, now.
3: I mean, there are. I mean, and then there's like Sausage Party. Like there are. Okay, <laughs> so anyway, there are some. There are some casting choices voice casting choices that i think are really really spot on but you're totally right that it has now again become something where it's just like well who is the voice mm-hmm. rather than did we pick the right person to be the voice who
2: is the character yeah like, do you yeah, want this to yeah. be its own character or do you want yeah. everyone to just think of this name yes In-
3: as far as this particular film goes, I mean, Kathleen Turner, absolutely the right choice. I think I i was telling Derek, I can't think of another person who could have pulled that off in the same way. Just that no. sultry yes. kind of. Yeah, it was really well done. Now, the individual who voiced Roger, you know, he is a, you know, pro- prolific actor in his own right. I think he has like over 100 credits, but he's not quote a name.
1: Sure. Unquote. Um,
3: yeah. So it makes me sad to think like if we had already kind of gone over that hump where like it was, you know, oh, yeah. celebrities who needed to voice oh, these yeah. characters, they have, who that they would, would have, have been.
0: Totally like put, a, put a name in yep. that role. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yep. And um, I mean, I, I want to make sure that like we did bring him up earlier, but I just want to make sure that I Charles Fleischer. So, you know, he does such an incredible job. Again. As we were watching it, I was saying to Derek, I was like, I don't even know how he's doing what he's doing. You were, you were
2: particularly impressed with how he says, please.
3: Yeah. Please. Yes. There you go. Oh wow. That's really good.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, turns out it was easier than so we thought. Jonathan, that's, if that's ever my,
3: you wanna go into voice acting. That's my uh, that's
0: my theater nerd past coming out right there.
3: <laughs> okay, okay. That okay, that I can Yep, that makes all the sense in the world. Yep, that actually makes sense. Um but I mean for somebody who has not even a little bit in her pinky finger the ability to do that kind of stuff like i'm so impressed
0: absolutely i mean it's a it is a real it's a real talent and it's Mm -hmm. also um it's also i think something that we take for granted is how important an animated voice is to the character i don't know if you've Mm -hmm. ever seen that that um short Daffy Duck film called Duckamuck where uh, basically like Daffy is, you know, shows up and he's like basically manipulated by the animator the entire yes. time. And yes. he's like yeah. erased yes. and he, and the sound is not matching and the his costumes is not matching the scenery and all this stuff. And, and part of what, part of why Chuck Jones made that film is he was interested in seeing if you like completely deconstruct a well-known animated character, can it still exist? Like, does the character still exist? And it's really the, you know, the voice that is doing all the heavy lifting Mm
1: -hmm.
0: uh, because it's such a recognizable part of the character, even beyond the image, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, you know, to that point, I feel like, really, really talented, you know, performers that that create the voices of characters, uh, we kind of take for granted that that is really one of the most important aspects of the character themselves is that unique, distinctive voice that's been created.
3: Absolutely. Oh, that's so interesting. And that's even why, like, you know, as a child... I remember a certain voice for Mickey or moving out of Disney, though. Like, I remember a certain voice for like Kermit. And so, when they have new people, yeah, you always kind of, yeah, Yeah. you always like kind of notice, like, Mm -hmm. as good as they might be. And obviously, you have to, if the character is to live on, unfortunately, the human who voices it is.
2: No, that character is that dead to me.
3: You need to, you know, eventually <laughs> pass it along to somebody else. But, um, yeah, you always like kind of, you can kind of clock it. Yeah. Um, it's
2: like a new Darren and Bewitched or something. Like, yes. Like, yes, yes,
3: <laughs> yes. Nobody says anything about it. <laughs> that's so funny. Oh, that's so funny. But you're totally right. And, um, wow, that's, I find that fascinating that, um, like, that Chuck Jones was, like, really specifically kind of playing around with that. That is that is really interesting to me. I love that. I mean, as far as Roger is concerned, I... How do I put this? I'm not, like... I don't lean so much into the, like, super spastic characters. Um... <laughs> sometimes it's a little bit too much energy. Like within yeah. like, the
2: first 30 seconds, I looked over at you and yeah, I'm like, he's yeah. just a little
1: extra. <laughs> he's a little
3: extra. Um, so I definitely lean more towards Jessica. And also here's what I'll say about Jessica. I, I like that. She, I, I recognize that I am talking about an animated character, but that being said, I appreciate that she is unapologetic for just who she is. Mm-hmm. and, and, yes all the men are crazy for her and what have you but I just she- want to play patty cake <laughs> <laughs> but she embraces her sexuality but also she is somebody who is a devoted wife and although you know there's like a runaround with you understanding her motives initially she is a very faithful woman wife who wants to support her husband and also she's really smart and she's she can take really, care of herself. Yeah. And she's really strong. Yeah. Um, that uh,
2: weasel tried to do the search, he got caught in the yeah. baby trap.
3: <laughs> you really like that one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those where I'm like, did they just say that? That's so, uh,
3: that's so
1: corny,
2: it's, but, oh, I was it's really awesome. corny
3: but it's you know, you had to be sad. Um, so I appreciate who Roger is, but definitely, and especially as like a young girl, you know, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna be more interested in Jessica. I mean, yeah, you
0: know, so yeah, my, I mean, definitely, my, you know, my campy child, gay mind was was definitely appreciative of Jessica because she was, mm-hmm. you know, just such an overblown femme fatale. I mean, yes, I, yeah. I, when I was a child. I, I had I didn't even watch film noir films, and f- for whatever reason, I would put on my mother's purple fuzzy bathrobe and take a Crayola crayon and vamp up and down the hallway <laughs> as if I was... Some femme fatale. And so
3: Was the crayon a cigarette?
0: The crayon was a cigarette.
3: Okay, okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, let's let's also point out that, you know, there's so much smoking and drinking in this movie. It's amazing.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, Uh but you know, I don't know where I got that from, but clearly it was it was some sort of an iconic thing that was burned into my brain. And so Jessica Rabbit was kind of the embodiment of what I was camping around at when I was a little kid.
3: Well, that's another really interesting point, because even if we're all saying, oh, yeah, I didn't watch noir as a child or, you know, what have you, some things are, you know, it's like osmosis, you know, it is. It's, yeah. it's even though at this point, 1988. So we're 40 years removed from like the heyday of those types of films, but it works its way into culture and even children Can kind of pick up on that to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really interesting point to be made about like what we uh, like the way that we are impacted completely, probably without our conscious knowledge.
2: Probably from an episode of Muppet Babies or something. (laughs) Yes,
0: (laughs) I love that was another great
3: Muppet Babies was (laughs) a bad.
0: Okay, so can I put on my feminist hat for a minute? Please, please do. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm just gonna point out some things that stood out to me. Uh uh, you know, as as we continue to look at Jessica Rabbit. So um there are basically three women characters in this entire movie. Uh one of them is a human who is not hypersexualized, the other two speaking roles are women who are hypersexualized that are animated. And that's basically Who's the third one? Betty Boop. Betty Boop. Oh, Betty Boop. Yeah. Gotcha. Thank you. And that's basically it in the entire movie. Like there's there are no other women that show up animated or unanimated in this in the world that we're inhabiting. And so that that was definitely something that I clocked watching at this time was how um, how male the world is that they yeah. that they had created. Which I think is also definitely a reflection of everybody that's behind the camera on this movie that, uh, you know, created created a very sort of male environment for this movie to live in.
3: Well, that okay. So I'm I'm really glad you brought that up, and that's interesting on so many levels. I mean, the first thing that came to mind when you, first of all, you're absolutely correct the first thing that came to mind was I'm curious if to some degree there was a deliberate choice made to not have a ton of female characters. Cause Jessica was such kind of a force of nature.
0: Oh, totally. Yes. I and think.
3: They, yeah,
0: yeah. I definitely, I definitely feel like that is, was part of the strategy is to, is to, you know, sort of not give her any quote unquote competition except mm-hmm, for Dolores. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. there's that contention between the two women, uh, that is sort of, you know, a, the, the classic, you know, girl fight type of thing going on. Uh, I do have to say, I was, yeah. I was appreciative that Betty Boop was very supportive of Jessica Rabbit. Yes! <laughs> I, that too. I was like, uh. Oh, that was an interesting choice where, you know, instead of, instead of like the easy way out, which is, you know, Oh, that, that tramp stole my act.
3: Exactly. Uh, exactly. She, she's like,
0: I just love her. Um, I thought that was a nice, a nice detail. And, you know, I, I also feel like Dolores is, you know, is, is less of a problematic character as she could have been mm-hmm. <laughs> as the only human woman in the movie. Um, well,
3: I mean, I, that, okay. So that's interesting. Cause I, I'm curious just what your response was to her presence being there and that subplot.
2: She got some great lines. Uh, she did have and- great lines. And she, she, she the-
3: like, I really, I, I liked her, but I was just curious if you felt it was necessary to have that subplot, that romantic subplot for Eddie.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like it's very old Hollywood to have that. It, sure. it, it felt very, it felt very in step with 1940s films to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her her character also felt like right out of a 1940s film, where she's mm-hmm. she does not suffer fools. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's very smart. She's scrappy. She's sort of like you know has learned how to survive. Uh, but you even know,
3: her way of speaking, like even she, her way of speaking, yeah. yeah.
0: But but still, you know, still would like uh, uh you know a steady relationship with with Eddie. You know, would like that component in her life um but it felt it felt very much drawn from 1940s movies to me in terms okay. of the character did you feel like she was superfluous
3: a little bit um i i liked her character i liked the way that the actress portrayed her but it kind of like what you, <laughs> actually what you were saying about the whole you know um killing the tunes with laughter, I kind of just didn't, I didn't find it super interesting. She yeah. reminded
2: me a little um, bit of like a, like a Eileen Brennan from the sting. Oh yeah. Character. yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah.
3: Yep. That's a great comparison. Yeah. And yeah. Uh,
2: I mean, the, is that a rabbit in your pants? Or are you just happy to see me? Line? Yeah. Another yeah. one of these things <laughs> were like, when I'm a kid, I'm like, I'm not sure I understand, but this is hilarious.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, she was given, here and there are like great lines and bits of business. Um,
2: Is he always this funny or just on days he's committed or like accused of murder?
3: Yeah. So she yeah. She has some great so she like one some,
2: liners. She yeah. A-
3: I just, I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was. It just, maybe it's something that like, I just am not going to be able to articulate. I just, did you hate Dolores? I didn't hate Dolores. <laughs> um, I just, it didn't click. For I have me to say that, that, well.
0: that, you know, I, I like that actress but mm-hmm. i do feel like another actor could have been a bigger showstopper in that role if that makes sense yeah, yeah. i i feel I like agree, she was yeah. i feel like she was very natural and kind of underplayed the role but i feel like there's room there particularly in such a broad movie to have an actor who's chewing up the scenery as that character mm-hmm.
3: Well, that so outside of okay. well, first of all, I would say arguably the biggest human star of the film is Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. And then Hoskins behind him. But yeah, I mean, you know, we go through the kind of main players and while everybody had like pretty extensive acting careers, they weren't really faces that because, you know, also talking about, you know, the. Gentlemen who respectively play uh, RK Maroon and Marvin Acme, they did really well. But I can't say that I was familiar with either one of them. Certainly not as a child. Mm-hmm. I just love the um, name
2: Maroon. Maroon, yeah. Because in all the old Looney Tunes, Bugs would say, "What a Maroon!"
3: Oh, oh, I didn't know that. He would, I didn't he know would that? like
0: misspeak instead of saying,
2: "What a moron!" What a Maroon!
3: Uh that's great I wonder if that it's so
0: I'm so glad you said that because I in rewatching it I was like that means something and I don't know what it
3: means (laughs) (laughs) I don't know
0: what it means but it's a pretty big you know plot point in the movie and so that's really funny that they that's great I think that's what it
2: was pulled from if I had to guess that's what I would guess
3: okay this has been an incredible conversation and certainly before we wrap up I do want to bring up Doom, D-O-O-M, and ask, do you have a recollection, Jonathan, as a child, what you thought of this kid? I know that I've kind of alluded to what I thought of him as a kid, but how did you respond to Doom? I
0: mean, I I remember him being effective, um, but I don't think I was like scared out of my wits or anything like that it's funny in re-watching it like his i mean you know his performance is fantastic and i've his like meltdown as he exposes <laughs> the tune inside of him at the end is so unhinged that i i was like I like, you know, I was like Bravo Christopher <laughs> Bravo <laughs> yeah. Bravo Christopher Lloyd for taking it to the degree that it needs to be taken to. Um, so I, I felt like his commitment was pretty awesome.
3: Yes, that's actually something we brought up as well, that he completely committed to this character. Did you know
2: when you first watched that he was a tune until the end? Because I can't remember whether I knew whether I knew that if that was supposed to be like a big reveal at the end with the steamroller or how did that play out for you
0: i I don't think I knew i think it was i think it was a reveal okay um and it was i you know i remember it being like a pretty thrilling one just because it's so physical and auditory and <laughs> uh you know it's 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 it, they're definitely playing on all the senses when he comes out of his shell
3: absolutely and First of all, I, you know what? I don't know. I I probably on some level did because I probably was seeing who was in this movie, but he wasn't immediately recognizable to me as Christopher Lloyd. Really? No, not for, I mean, as a kid. Yeah,
0: I I would agree. And I think that, I mean, it's so vastly different from Doc. Yeah, exactly. That I, I also, I feel the same way. I think that I don't even know as a kid if I. Thought it was the same actor.
3: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, because he he did so completely and imbo- like whether or not you took to the character, like he really embodied it. Like went went all in on it. And you know oh, who he ahead. reminds yeah.
0: me of it, it, when I was a kid is um, the guy from Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Nazi. Oh, yes.
3: yeah.
0: That's who I thought he was when I was a kid. I was oh. like, oh, it's because you know he's like kind of bald with the round glasses and it's it it, that's sort of what got under my craw when i was
3: that age and the same kind of menace yes i yes that's a great comparison i could totally see that yeah and that's what i actually think is so interesting about this character is like you know he eventually reveals himself to be the ultimate like antagonist but he's never introduced as a great guy. Like, it's not like it's it is. I was also surprised. I I certainly had no idea that he was a tune. I don't I don't know if I just really need to rewatch this film several times over to see if any clues are given at all to the fact that he is.
2: the The clue that I think I missed was that when they're in the bar and they try to dunk Roger in the dip and it gets knocked over, he kind of like flinches back because oh. okay. you know it, it could have yeah it could have harmed him he, he had like the protective glove on when yeah. he dumped the shoe in yeah. but in the bar it could have actually hurt him so oh. he kind of moves back a little bit in a weird way where like after i already knew that he was a tune i thought about that and that. You know, maybe. But when I first saw him get run over by the steamroller, I'm like, this is horrific. It was horrific. And, and so then I realized, okay, he's a tune. It's fine.
3: Real quick, to your point, I feel like it's like when you rewatch The Sixth Sense <laughs> and you're like, okay, where are the clues? Uh-huh. That, Like, sorry, people out there, spoilers. Me, Bruce Willis oh, is dead. Please, have um, seen that movie
1: already.
3: <laughs> So I feel like it's the same thing. But um, yeah, I would say that although I stick to my guns in saying that the shoe... Is the most horrific death, yeah, in the movie. And although mm. technically he doesn't die by steamroller, it is a horrific,
0: yeah, moment. It, it totally is. And then it 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 sort of has that Terminator Two feeling when he yes. reanimated, <laughs> and you're like, oh my god, like it's it it definitely has. It's a pretty great jaw dropping moment when he reanimates himself.
3: Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, I wonder if James Cameron got ideas from. <laughs> duh, 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 <laughs> from <laughs> who Framed Roger Rabbit?
0: <laughs> that would be amazing if James Cameron was like, I'm going to reference Who Framed Roger Rabbit in my hard R rated movie, Terminator 2. Um, you never
3: know. You never know. Uh, inspiration it's inspiration comes from interesting places. But uh, the
0: T stands for tune. Uh, yes.
3: <laughs> but yeah, Wait, I you, mean.
0: Can we talk for a yes. second about? Oh, sorry. Do, I, no, I please want to cut go you off. ahead. No, no. About the just the hilarity, super insidery, la oh. la naval gazing centric joke of the freeway in this. Yeah. Film. Oh my god! Yes, <laughs> I,
3: I was thinking about that as we were watching it this last time. Okay, for so first of all as a kid who grew up in the Midwest, that certainly would not have clocked with me. Um and this go around I was like, what a specific yeah. <laughs> like
2: so joke. We all live in the world where he won.
3: Exactly. Yes. yes yeah. yeah. Which I yeah. which was,
0: you know, I think I think it's, you know, it's it's funny because starting in the '90s, I think, is when they the first set of subways went into Los Angeles, and obviously, you know, every decade another line gets put in. Uh, you know, the Expo Expo line was super huge in terms of going all the way to the sea, but you know, we're, we're clearly in a stage where all of that public transportation, in terms of trains, is painstakingly being put back into mm-hmm. the yeah. infrastructure of the city uh, after being ripped out specifically by the automobile companies, mm-hmm. right. That, yep. that very successfully in a re- in the real world were the judge dooms of Los Angeles or Southern California in general, just yeah. completely destroying all of their public transit. Um, but it, it, it definitely, and I, you know, as much as I loved and appreciated all of the freeway jokes, especially when Eddie is like that lame brain freeway idea could only be cooked up by a tune. Like, uh, <laughs> It, it, it is, it is such a, it is such a funny example of Hollywood thinking that Hollywood is the most interesting thing to put on screen. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah. Because you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that's why, I mean, I really do love this movie, but the, the ending of it is interesting to me because first, I mean, we've already gone over the whole, like, killing the tunes with laughter and how that kind of sat with each of us. But then this being the big, like, Machiavellian plan of Judge Doom. Freeway. Freeways. And I was like, for how many people was this, like, a solid, (laughs) like, reason for all of his...
2: Yeah. If you're a kid, you don't really care. And if you're an adult, you probably think it's funny.
0: Yeah, and I, but I think I think you know again this was such a critic's darling when it came out, and and yes, the critics yes. were just falling all over themselves for this movie, and I, you know, almost all of the critics live in Los Angeles, yep. and I, I, I just I really feel like it's it's a delicious Angelino moment. Yeah. <laughs> Delicious
2: Angelino, and
0: and, I like that uh, and yet it. I also recognize that it trans it would not translate at all to the rest of the people watching the
3: movie. Yeah, it's it is a really really interesting choice that's made for that to be the the foundation of why he's doing what he's doing. Even
2: the beginning of the film, he makes a comment about how Los Angeles has the greatest public transit system yes, in the world. Yes, yes, yes,
3: yeah. Which that was that's probably more funny because I do yeah. think that most people I mean I boy, this is hard to like suss out. But I'm gonna say that even before moving to California, I was aware of how Traffic. it was a very car-centric <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah uh area and there was no such thing, you know, it could not be uh further apart from like a city like New York or Chicago mm. where um public transportation is the main way of getting around. So um that much I was aware of. So that that I think, maybe again, not as a child per se, but I that joke would have landed better. Um and in, in any case, I mean, I think that like as a character, he to me was very scary. I think it was an interesting choice that they made him scary from the outset. Mm-hmm. And then you only are realizing levels of and, and like just like how I will say this the most effective part for me is like, wow. He is terrifying because he's willing to kill his own kind. Yes. Yeah. Like that was the thing that really landed with me. And that is like for me the root of his evil. He was kind of enthusiastic about
2: it. He yes! was more than just willing. Yeah.
3: How once you know that he's also a tune and the way he killed that shoe?
0: Yeah. I that's mean, speaking of Nazis, it's very Final Solution. Yes! Like it's, yes <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes! It's, it's pretty... That aspect is very dark.
3: It's so dark. It, And that's why, again, this film is really, like... It's an interesting it's film. so fascinating to me with <laughs> yeah, all these different no, layers. And, and
0: again, like, you know I, know, I know I mentioned it offhand before, but... Uh, you know, they're like the, the children giving Eddie the cigarettes and yes! when he gets off the train and then like how much alcohol is in the movie and how it's like used in key plot points. And yep, I mean, none of that stuff would be allowed now no. in the same film. Uh, but it's just interesting how much adult material they mm. were. They were confident to put in the film mm. as a kid's product um because of, you know, just the time period and what sort of what, what you could sort of fly with.
3: You're absolutely right. And it, you know, kind of going back to what we were saying in terms of it being maybe um groundbreaking or maybe a turning point because of what had preceded it in terms of animation. I mean, now it's much more a thing. Like I I'll go back to the Shrek movies. The Shrek movies have a ton of adult Humor, but I still think that it's um softened. Yes. You know, they no I don't think I can't I mean unless like you're jokes.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> yeah. And unless you are watching a film like Sausage Party that is specifically intended for only adults, mm-hmm. um I think films are recognizing that, you know, animation, it's its own Oscar category, you know, like it, it is such big business that they are trying to appeal to both adults and children. And so that's why they kind of walk that line. Um, but certainly this film, again, just what an interesting touch point for where animation went um, and the way that they market to both adults and children. Yeah, Totally. Jonathan, this has been such a pleasure. Oh,
0: same here. This has been delightful. I I I don't think I've I've confessed this much Disney stuff in my entire <laughs> life to anyone. So
3: I love it cuz it's it is, you know, we we kind of touched on, you know, Disney just basically buying up everything in the world. Um but there I mean, there's a reason why Derek and I love going to Disneyland. I mean, there they is There is a lot of stuff right they yes. did a lot of stuff right, and you know, want to get props to Warner Brothers as well. But um, and if you're you listening, know-
2: <laughs> Disney, this podcast is available for sale. <laughs> uh,
3: but um, no, I just think it's wonderful to have that kind of love and just that depth of knowledge about it. It's been so interesting listening to you talk about it. And speaking of chatting. I would love for you to tell our listeners what you've been up to. I kind of mentioned it a little bit at the beginning. Derek and I uh, were most honored to get to see your film, Dramarama. It's a beautiful film. Thank and you. um, if you'd like to talk a little bit more about it.
0: Yeah, sure. So um, speaking of things from my past, uh, <laughs> so my, my film, Dramarama, is a coming-of-age film set in 1994 about a group of conservative drama nerds who have their last murder mystery party before they go off to college Uh, and it's uh definitely loosely based off of me and my friends it's a very nostalgic sweet film uh about being afraid of change and that sort of next stage in life uh and focusing a little bit more on the the nerd kids rather than the cool kids and um yeah it's it's it was a delight to make. And, uh, it was an extra delight to have a theatrical release in an actual Mm -hmm. movie theater in the time of COVID. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you can now, you know, rent it on all your basic platforms. So Amazon, Apple, Google play, Xbox cable, all that, all that stuff, wherever you get video on demand, it's available. So check it out. If you are, if you're interested in coming of age films or drama kids or early nineties culture, or any of those things.
3: I mean, and honestly, even beyond, I mean, I'm really saying this with all sincerity. It's such, it's such a well done film. You can see just how much love you poured into it. There's a great um,
2: attention to detail too. Oh
3: my goodness. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, even like the toothbrushes, <laughs> like those are <laughs> the toothbrushes you used in the 90s. Like, how? How did you do that? Like sourcing that. Um, but even I mean, the the attention to detail is wonderful. The performances are just so endearing. I'm very proud of that cast.
0: They're delightful, talented kids. So
3: Truly are the storylines, the way that, you know, you give due diligence to each individual character, but then also the way that their storylines come together is really well done. I just, I just enjoyed it from, like, I literally hit a smile on my face the whole time.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it.
3: Absolutely. So everybody, please. Two thumbs up here. Mm -hmm. Go see Dramarama. And Jonathan, thank you again for being on the show. It was truly our pleasure. Thank
0: you both. This was completely delightful. I really appreciate it.
3: Oh, my goodness. That was really, really fun. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, I had such a great time talking to him. Okay. Derek? Yes. Would you watch this film again?
2: I think I almost have to watch it again because there's Mm -hmm. so much that happens really quickly. Yeah. I kind of I think if I watched it again, I'd, I'd like see, notice even more things.
3: Totally agree with you. I mean, I think that kind of came up in our conversation with Jonathan, just that there's so, so much.
2: There's a lot going there's on. There's
3: just so, your eye cannot go to everything in a single viewing. And so, and, and I mean, I and audio, you know, in terms of like jokes, little quips, little asides, the things that I really enjoyed so much, I mean multiple times i laughed out loud because
2: just goes again to how difficult it must have been to make this to have everything hit just right
3: absolutely so big yes for me too i definitely feel like i know there's stuff that i missed so i don't want to and also i just um you know jonathan talked about his love of animation and these different characters and they from both, you know, Di- the Disney and Warner Brothers side, there's so much in there. I just, from that perspective, I'm like, yeah, I just kind of want to see who's in there again. Like, who's in these different scenes? Yeah. And, yeah. I got
2: to find Huey, Louie, and Dewey.
3: Yes. Huey, Dewey, Louie? Yeah, you said it right.
2: I got to find those three. You got to find the ducks. I got to find those three ducks.
3: <laughs> uh, as far as a call to action. Yeah. So, given that we just said that there are all these disney characters there's all these warner brother characters for some of them they were like okay we got to have equal screen times so that there's no whatever
2: they that so, was just negotiated i'm sure
3: oh yeah like, yeah
2: for no reason other than like we don't want it to look like it's more of this than that
3: correct i'm curious who sides on who falls on what side like you know i'm going to i'm going to probably pretty confidently say that jonathan's going to consider himself a disney person mm mm-hmm. mhm But I'm curious, especially that, like, there used to be Looney Tunes stores out there. Are you Team
2: Mickey or Team Bugs?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Are you Team Mickey or Team Bugs? Who do you lean towards if you're going to watch a cartoon or any type of animation? So... If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love for you to, you can reach out through Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. And it's the same handle for all three. It is at 80s Montage Pod and 80s is 80S. It is. It is. Yeah. Okay. Sneak peek. Coming up in two weeks. What do we got? I'm really excited about this, and I actually really love. I mean, I love when we can revisit films that we have seen in the past, but it's really fun in a totally different way to get to experience a film for the first time with somebody who loves that film.
2: It has been something that I hadn't unex- hadn't expected to come out of this because yeah. I think when we first started making these, we figured it would be like revisiting something that we had seen that mm-hmm. had some like nostalgia involved. But it has been really interesting to see things that I either like wouldn't have seen or just didn't see when I was younger. And getting a chance to see them again now and talk to somebody who like really loves that loves that movie has been like a great unexpected part of this.
3: Absolutely. And so without further ado, our episode next time will be on parting glances. And as always, yeah. we will have a wonderful guest here to talk about it with us. And in the meantime, thank you so much for hanging with us and we will see you in two weeks time.